0: The following content is brought to you by Will Harris, Andy Beach, and Paul Boyer. Welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for May 15th. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a bunch, a bunch of stuff to go over. We are going to have an interview about where experts stand in our modern world. Whether or not we are paying more or less attention to them. We are also going to go into our mailbag. We got... uh, Some great uh, uh, feedback, not only from the episode uh, on Wednesday, but but also uh, going back a few weeks, uh, including the fact that Woodrow Wilson. We did our little history lesson last uh, episode about Woodrow Wilson getting sick with the Spanish flu as he's negotiating an end to World War One. Well, folks, it's worse than you think. You're going to find that out a little bit later. But first. I've spent all morning for you. I have slaved like a homemade dinner. I have slaved for hours on this so you guys can have something that I believe you need. And that is Obamagate for dummies. Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected and it's a disgrace that it happened, and if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now, all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next over the coming weeks, But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it, but unfortunately, you choose not to do so yet. How do you like my theme song? Catchy, huh? Well, as you can tell, uh, the president didn't exactly articulate what Obamagate is. And so I had to do a little digging myself. And uh, I felt a little bit like Charlie Day with his uh, Pepe Sylvia board. As I was writing down, you can hear these are all my my notes of, of writing down timelines and Everything that goes along with this. So here, let's go ahead and get the definition up top, as simply as I can put it. In short, Obamagate is investigate the Russiagate investigators in fewer words. Now, there's a very specific political context to why it's called Obamagate, but I'm going to save that for the end. Here's as best as I can understand it. The charge is that the entire Russia investigation was deliberately blown up and orchestrated by former Obama officials or members of the intelligence community that were loyal to them and or suspicious of Trump. Ultimately, your understanding of this will likely diverge on one crossroad. Do you believe that these Obama officials believed that there was fire to the smoke of the Russia allegations. And if so, what means do you think is fair to justify its public handling? Moreover, at what point, even with pure motives, does it become spiteful damaging of an incoming administration that you don't agree with? Now, obviously, if you think that there is fire to the smoke that Donald Trump is a Russian agent, then there is no limit to that, right? You you are able to do whatever you want. If you think that maybe there is enough justification to see these situations through, but at a certain point you need to stop, well, now we're getting into muddier waters. And if you believe that there's absolutely no way that Donald Trump is a Russian agent and all of this is totally manufactured, well, folks, that's where Donald Trump is leading his supporters. So let's go ahead and and go through some of the timeline here. It's the end of 2016. We have just had the biggest upset in political history. And now there is this swirling idea that there were Russian ties to the Trump administration, the Trump campaign. And now the incoming Trump administration. One of the main people that is at the center of it is retired General Michael Flynn. Now, Michael Flynn was in Obama's Pentagon and was made to resign earlier. He retired technically early. He became a bit of a star on Fox News. That's where he gets on Trump's radar. And and remember this, Donald Trump goes through that 2016 campaign where he does not have access to the top tier of Republican officials. He's got to deal with a lot of the scratch and dent bin because nobody inside the Republican Party proper believed he would win. And to be totally honest with you, Wanted him to win. I think there were a lot of people, at least in Cleveland, during that Republican National Convention, that were ready to eat eight years of Hillary. That were ready to just, you know, look, we we will rebuild. We'll try our best to get Hillary in four years, but we're just going to have to swallow this one. So Flynn becomes tight with the campaign, and then when they win, is tapped to be the National Security Advisor. It is at this point that the Obama administration puts sanctions on Russia for meddling in the elections. They expel a bunch of diplomats. And Flynn makes a call to Russian ambassador Kislyak. Now, that call is monitored. And from November 2016 to January 2017... When Obama officials get word that there is a communication between somebody and Kislyak that needs to be on their radar, there are 16 officials who seek to unmask him, quote-unquote. They want to know exactly who it is. And so they find out. Now, on January 4th, according to unsealed FBI records, the FBI investigation into Flynn is thought to be wrapped up. The agents looking into him don't believe that he has any material ties to Russia that would find him to be leveraged. So they suggest that they wrap up this investigation. They are told by the powers that be, to keep it open. On January 5th, President Obama briefs James Comey and Sally Yates, the two intelligence officials that will bridge between the Obama and Trump administrations, on the Flynn call. Comey mentions the Logan Act at that point, according to records. On January 6th, incoming President Trump meets with James Comey and Comey briefs Trump on the PP tapes. January 10th, the P-Tapes dossier leaks uh, with the news hook that Donald Trump has been briefed on it. And remember how this played out too. Initially, the scoop went to CNN saying that there was a dossier that alleged that there was a a compromise on Donald Trump. That there was a leverage from the Russian government to the president, then a private citizen, now the incoming president. CNN did not put out this full dossier. BuzzFeed did, which at the time I was happy about. You can't just hint around at this if you're going to make that kind of claim and you have it. And this apparently had been something that had been circulating throughout the D.C. press for a while. You got to just put it out in full. And so that's where we get the whole story that Donald Trump watched a couple hookers pee on a bed that Obama slept it. All right. Now, on January 12th. This is important. A column runs in the Washington Post. This is a column by David Ignatius. He starts with a Hamlet lead, which, oh my God, calm down, Frazier. But here's the big paragraph. According to a senior U.S. government official, Flynn phoned Russian Ambassador Sergey Kislyak several times on December 29th, the day the Obama administration announced the expulsion of 35 Russian officials as well as other measures in retaliation for the hacking. What did Flynn say and did it undercut U.S. sanctions? The Logan Act, though never enforced, bars U.S. citizens from correspondence intending to interfere with a foreign government about disputes with the United States. Was its spirit violated? The Trump campaign didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Now, this column is important for this situation for for a couple reasons. Number one, where did Ignatius get that information from? Number two, James Comey has since publicly cited that column as a reason that Michael Flynn should be interviewed further by the FBI. That happens on January 24th. And that is where Flynn lies to the federal investigators. Of course, this is eventually played out in the Mueller report, but according to the Mueller report, this is what he lies about. On or about December 29th, Flynn did not ask the government of Russia's ambassador to the United States to refrain from escalating the situation in response to sanctions that the United States had imposed against Russia on that same day. And Flynn did not recall the Russian ambassador subsequently telling him that Russia had chosen to moderate its response to those sanctions as a result of his request. And furthermore, on or about December 22nd, Flynn did not ask the Russian ambassador to delay the vote or defeat a pending United Nations Security Council resolution that the Russian ambassador subsequently never described to Flynn's Russia response to his request. So he lied. He lies to FBI agents, although now unsealed records say that even James Comey at the time was saying that, well, are the lies material? Are these omissions? Do we really want to go forward with charges? They eventually decide, of course, that they will. Now, I want to pause right here because things are going to escalate really, really quickly after this. But right now, this is kind of that paths diverging in a wood moment. If you believe that Flynn is just the tip of the iceberg of one of the most explosive elements in governmental history, that a actual president of the United States is owned by the Russians, then you can understand wanting to shake every single limb of this tree as hard as possible to see if anything falls out. The literal fate of the nation depends on it. But if you look at the fact that the FBI wanted to shut this down before, and there were conversations about the Logan Act, And you didn't really get Flynn on anything? Well, you might also think this should have been left there. Sure, you do your due diligence, you look into it. But it didn't seem like there was any there there. So why does it go further than this? Beyond that, James Comey took some fairly extraordinary actions to get that Flynn interview. This is James Comey talking about his decision to do the interview with Flynn and the methods by which he used to do it.
1: You look at this White House now and it's hard to imagine two FBI agents ending up in the sit room. How did that happen?
0: I sent them. Um,
1: <laughs> um, something we, I probably wouldn't have done or maybe gotten away with in a more organized investigation, a more organized administration, in the George W. Bush administration, for example, or the Obama administration. In both of those administrations, there was process. And so if the FBI wanted to send agents into the White House itself to interview a senior official, you would work through the White House
0: counsel and there'd be discussions and approvals and who would be there. And I thought it's early enough, let's just send a couple guys over. So he does. Flynn lies. Flynn then apparently lies to Mike Pence, And he's fired. Eventually, obviously, he bargains with Mueller. He cooperates with the Mueller investigation. And his sentencing, if you actually look at the timeline, just takes forever. He just delays it and delays it and delays it. Then the government delays it. Then he delays it. Then he he gets a new lawyer. Eventually, we get to where we are now. And that's the Department of Justice under Bill Barr dismissing this case. Because, according to Barr... He doesn't feel that the Department of Justice could prove that he was guilty despite the fact that Flynn initially pled guilty to it. So, let's go back to February of 2019. It is then, according to memos written by James Comey, on the 19th, Donald Trump makes a private plea to Comey For him to go easy on Flynn because Flynn is a good guy. It is this specific interaction that Comey has with Donald Trump that is in part why when Comey is fired, he wants to set up the special counsel into this specific issue. And that obviously is, is the next year and a half is, is the Mueller uh, investigation and then the report. So from there, let's go back. Because again, your belief in this relies on how much you believe the drive to uncover something as explosive as an incoming president being leveraged by a foreign power justifies the means. There is little doubt When you look at it in this perspective and you start to peel back and go in reverse issue by issue, that each level was predicated by the previous one. We wouldn't have gotten Mueller if not for Comey's firing and testimony that Trump was suspiciously asking about Flynn. We would not have gotten Comey's firing if there hadn't been conflicts over the handling of the Russia claims. And we would not have gotten the Russia claims if not for Flynn getting fired and Sessions recusing himself. Donald Trump then and now is a uniquely unpopular president with much of the country. And the original sin of being a Russian agent is a near irresistible target to chase for those that hate him and also want to explain how a private citizen like Donald Trump could get elected. Which has never happened before. In fact, we've seen the Russian agent narrative survive. I've seen it applied to Bernie fans or Tara Reid. So, that's what it is. That's what Obamagate is. Uh, that, that is, That is the central, best I can tell, the central idea When Donald Trump says it's been going on for a long time from before he was president and there's more coming out. And he does seem to have a director of national intelligence that seems to be leading people in the direction of proving certain elements of this. So hopefully now you know. But before we wrap up, I want to give you the political ramifications of it. Because I don't think this is happening... In a vacuum, I do believe that this is a political weapon being used by the Trump administration because we're in that season. The reason this is named Obamagate is twofold. First, it's an excuse to re-examine the Russia investigation and the Mueller report. Basically like I just had to do to even make sense of what Obamagate means. And I gotta tell you, in the cold light of 2020, some of these things do not seem as compelling as they did in 2017. At least to me. Considering the majority of Trump's first term in office was consumed by this, I think a review of the facts, this time with a possibly sinister motive attached to it, does his reelection effort a service? Even if you don't buy that this was a coup attempt, it stands to reason that you could look at it more like overcautious federal investigating and less the Manchurian candidate in the way that it was presented in real time, which is a benefit to Trump for folks who aren't plugged into this all the time. All they know is that at some point they heard Trump's a Russian agent and now as people are tuning back in if the conversation is well everybody was just kind of doing their job then that benefits Trump. Second it attacks Trump's general election opponent right in his strength. Joe Biden's connection to Barack Obama. If you can even marginally tarnish the previous administration, then you do tremendous multipliers of damage to Biden, whose greatest resume builder is his role in this administration. Take away Obama and what do you have with Biden? An older version of a twice-failed presidential candidate. There is one claim to the Obamagate thing that I find funny, and I'm going to speculate here. But Joe Biden is on the list of people that were requesting an unmasking of who was on that call with Kislyak. But he doesn't request it until January 12th, the same day that Ignatius runs his column in The Washington Post. Which makes me think one thing. Joe Biden is out of the inner circle of trust. Joe Biden had to read about this in the Washington Post, and then Joe Biden wanted to get confirmation himself, so he requested an unmasking. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Obamagate for dummies. All right, I have a correction to make. I, I, I wanna, I wanna correct something. Last episode, I was talking about California 25 and the special election. Uh, it was a shock win by the GOP, but I got some stuff wrong, and I got corrected by my boss. Literally, it was a dude named Joe Boss. <laughs> Who's Boss? Joe Boss. Joe Boss uh, corrected the record. And uh, uh, I want to get it right here. So, uh, number one, the uh, California 25 stats. That seat has a really interesting kind of a pattern to it. it. It has bounced between the Republicans and Democrats over the last 50 years with a Democrat serving for two decades from the 70s to the 90s and then Republicans doing the same from the 90s until when Katie Hill won uh, uh, recently. Also, I stated that Hillary won that district by 50 points. Not the case. She won over 50% of the vote and beat Trump by a good margin, but it was not nearly by 50%. So, PX3 regrets the error, and uh, I, I humbly thank my boss, Joe Boss, for correcting the record. And it's because... I've got the greatest listenership ever, ever. And I know that by the fact that you guys go to takepoliticsseriously.com and uh, support me. We are on the road to 1K and we are tantalizingly close to coming within 100 patrons of it. We are at 890 now. And uh, uh, maybe we'll go over 900 I don't know. Be very excited. One nine hundred politics. That would be a nice little phrase to toss around. Of course, if you are at the $3 level, you get two bonus episodes each and every week. You get one on Tuesday, one on Thursday. If you're at the $10 tier, you get shouted out at the end. If you're at the ridiculous tier, uh, you get your name mentioned with the Dear Martha violins. And if you just want to show that this kind of programming matters, especially now when we are in an election year and during a pandemic and everybody is freaking out and you want some element of, of, can I just know what's happening without somebody trying to curve me? Well, you can support at the big tent level. That's only a buck. Thank you to everybody who has done it. Take Politics seriously.com. Our guests today are Benjamin Waterhouse and Lee Vinsel. Benjamin is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author of Lobbying America, the Politics of Business from Nixon to NAFTA and the Land of Enterprise, a Business History of the United States. And Lee is an assistant professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech and the co-director of The Maintainers, a global network focused on maintenance, repair, infrastructure, and the ordinary work that keeps things going. But together, they wrote in The Washington Post about how the coronavirus is making America trust experts again, reversing a several decades-old trend. But then again, that was written a couple weeks ago. In fact, maybe things have even regressed since it published. What do you say we find out from them? Benjamin, Lee, welcome to the show. All right, thanks for thanks having for us. Thanks for having us. All right, just uh, so everybody uh, is able to keep the voices clear. Uh, uh, ben, uh, if you could just say hello so everybody knows what your voice sounds like. Hi, this is Ben. All right, and Lee, do the same. Hi, this is Lee. Perfect. Now. Uh, you guys are uh, uh, the authors of a uh, editorial in the Washington Post about how in the age of COVID, there is a very interesting trend that has been reversed after a few decades of decline. And that is Americans saying that they are listening to and trusting experts uh, it might be a silly question. But why do you think that is?
1: Well, I, this is ben i guess the uh, the first caveat that we should throw out there is that you know this is a really rapidly evolving uh, situation in in our country, and so we, we try to be real careful um, to make a, an observation um, that wasn 't necessarily the only interpretation of, uh, of events. Uh, I myself am continually struck in just the weeks since that editorial came out by um, the degree to which, you know, the premise is looking shakier and shakier uh, as, as we go along. But at the very in the first couple of weeks of this, it struck us that, uh, you know, people's willingness to drop everything and um, and take the advice of the medical community, both um, in and out of government, uh, was was noteworthy. And, uh, you know, it certainly was self-serving and there was a lot of uh, reaction that was based on self-preservation rather than um, you know maybe the, the the public interest um but we we thought it was it was an interesting kind of inversion of of trends that uh that people seemed to take the threat seriously um mm. at, and to the degree that they did particularly you know by late March. <sighs>
0: Uh, So let me ask uh, Lee, you, uh, I mean, obviously this is something that is rapidly evolving, but one of the things that I've been struck by even kind of before this is what the role of an expert, the understanding of who an expert is in our modern 2020 world. uh, When we have so much access to uh, media, uh, it's not just the guy who shows up on the nightly news. It seems like every day I'm introduced to a new expert on Twitter who has a a very compelling tweet thread. So what is an expert in 2020?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, People who study media in society have been saying that, you know, we kind of live in a flatter world where um, there's not the same old filters um, that were around for, you know, most of the 20th century. Um, And so, you know, the the whole notion of expertise becomes kind of undermined when, you know, anybody uh, can put forward an opinion or, you know, promote themselves as experts uh, in this world. I think that, you know, Ben and I wanted to point out um, to the degree that we did see a shift in those early weeks around COVID. We wanted to point out that, you know, the attack on expertise uh, is something that's, you know, has a long history that goes back at least 50 or 60 years. Um, and that, you know, that was kind of what we wanted to highlight is that both, you know, intellectuals attacked, uh, somewhat ironically attacked experts in the 60s going into the 70s as a problem in society. And then this was taken up um, by politicians, you know, especially Republicans, but not exclusively. And so the position where we ended up in the last you know decade where there's been a really strong distrust of experts, um you know per- perhaps aided by social media and other changes in media uh is the the kind of end of a long historical trajectory
0: all right well then let's let's go back. what was the expert what, who who were the initial experts that earned the criticism from those intellectuals in the the, the late fifties and the sixties i I guess we'll go to Ben with that one.
1: Well, yeah, so I think you know the, the the context that we need to to put this in is the the rapid changes in in society in industrial society in particular over the course of the first half of the last half of the nineteenth century, the first half of the twentieth century, that really brought modern life to uh, to all of us in in brought you know a level of complexity and uh, sophistication in in ways that were just kind of unimaginable to earlier generations of people and for Several generations, really up through the period of the Second World War and the period right after that, um, these changes were, were massive and rapid uh, and, and really you know, required a huge degree of, of complex understanding. At the same time, people's expectations for what modern life would bring to them changed radically. Um, you know, Think about something like the advances of modern medicine, um and the diseases that were eradicated the extension of quality of life uh and then on top of that you get sort of this economic boom after world war ii that increases most people's real income and quality of life in really dramatic ways so that by the 1950s and 60s we have both a much more complicated society and a much more uh, and much higher expectations for what that society will bring to us these are the things that start to get challenged in the 1970s, um, but not just on an intellectual level, but on a material level, when all that sort of economic growth starts to uh, slacken and the kind of expectation that things will always get better and things will always be improving, uh, sort of runs up against reality uh, in in many people's eyes. And I think this, this creates a kind of a crisis of, um, of confidence among many people that manifests in a lot of different ways. Uh, some of them are politicized. Some of them are uh, sort of intellectual or cultural critiques. But this is really the moment in the sort of, I would say, late 1960s, 1970s, where this sense that maybe the, the powers that be are not actually, uh, you know, taking account of my best interest or they're not actually um, making things better um, starts to get reinforced by, by the things that are surrounding everybody.
0: So w- w- when yeah, we... And I think- Sorry, yeah, go ahead, Lee, go a- ahead.
1: Yeah, to tag on to
2: that, I mean, I think what you see is there's Austrian economists like Friedrich Hayek and Joseph Schumpeter, um, and then American intellectuals and writers who are influenced by those guys like um, Daniel Bell and Daniel Patrick Moynihan basically start to worry about the growth of bureaucracy and regulation. Um, and they cast what they call the new class, which is basically, the uh, you know, kind of bureaucratic experts and intellectuals as getting in the way of economic growth and innovation and change that they think is a good thing. So a lot of it has to do with kind of economists and then
1: sociologists who are influenced by economists were some of the early critics of, of the changes. And I'd point out that this whole notion of a new class is really wrapped up in a question of democratic legitimacy and who's in charge and who where power lies in a society. Because the, the criticism of the new class uh, that Lee just mentioned is, you know, that that these people are not really the um, the the people who are really making society work. They're not the the business folks or the innovators or the change agents. Um, they are, uh, you know, to use the econ- economist term, they're sort of rent seekers who sort of leech off of off society as as you said, bureaucrats or um, you know, government officials or agents of various government bodies uh, that don't really contribute anything, and yet they uh, seem to wield all this power. And so the, the pro-democratic argument, I mean, with a small T and a small D, not like the party, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the pro-democracy argument is that, that this is kind of siphoning away individual freedom and individual choice. Um, and so when all of these kind of factors come together, you get a profound sense of, of, of unease and distrust in various levels of expertise.
0: Gotcha. So so this is a situation where uh, now the people who are making decisions, quote unquote, for our own good, maybe we should be taking a closer look at them and maybe uh, uh, their decisions are either unnecessary or outright harmful.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it was you know, I thought it was there was a kind of beautiful example of this yesterday. I think it was when Rand Paul, right, the senator who has kind of libertarian leanings told um Dr. Fauci, that he isn't the end all, you know, like as if sure. his words shouldn't be the, the the thing driving everything. It was just kind of a you know wrapped up this whole notion um, in a bow.
0: That that's that 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 is an example of you know Dr. Fauci, the the director of the National Institute of Health, that for uh, uh, you know his voice should not be considered. The final voice, which is interesting, because it's not right. It's also not his job to be the final voice. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Right. But it
1: speaks to this notion that that some sort of like individual freedom or or a a, uh, rule by the many, this democracy, is undermined by somebody who knows more than you do, telling you what you ought to do.
0: Okay. So so uh, uh, let's let's go back to you know where where this comes from. Uh, There is a steady decline in confidence in experts from the 1960s up till now uh uh, what what is what is the the science or the 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 polling behind that like how much faith did we have in experts and where was it right before covid
1: well these are you know very difficult things to measure with any with any certainty you can pick up overall trends um and it frequently depends on on specific question that you asked. The overall trend line was was down from, I'd say, the mid-50s, I'm sorry, mid-60s uh, into, you know, the 1970s was probably the, the worst of it in terms of faith in government, faith in the military after Vietnam. Um, there's a little bit of an upswing in the last decades of the 20th century, and sometimes it matters, you know, how the economy is doing or whether the country is sort of in a period of prosperity versus war or, you know, things like that. So it, it's kind of hard to put a precise number on sure. uh, on discontent. But I think qualitatively you can look at the range of uh, of debates over a, a number of different types of scientific issues, um, climate change and, you know, vaccinations and things like that are sort of the most obvious ones where um, there was, if not a growing, a very steady level of, uh, of popular distrust and cynicism, um, and, and debates about them. You know, the, the arguments over climate change have really sort of settled in, had at least settled into this notion of, you know, there's an overwhelming scientific consensus, and there's a very vocal minority uh, that disputes it.
0: So when it comes to trust, it it does seem that if we're taking it from the mid 60s to the end of the century, that does also coincide with a big explosion in media, not only cable, but also the internet and then social media on top of it. Uh, Is there, I guess my question is twofold. Number one, if we have so much more bandwidth, and therefore issues can be discussed and are regularly discussed in much more granularity, does that naturally feed its way into questioning and second-guessing what experts say? Uh, and, And number two, is just even the existence of the discussion clouding the idea of whether or not by the end of the discussion, we have more faith or less faith in the experts? Hmm
2: yeah Ben and I have talked a lot about these issues over the years i mean, I think that you know we've always kind of had uh, people have always been partisan um, but I think that the way the parties have changed over the last thirty or forty years uh, and the way that's gone hand in hand with changes in media where we're, you know we have media channels that feed much more to our inclinations than they did you know in the 50s or 60s or 70s when there's only three television channels. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we kind of live in a fractured media environment. Um, and so we get very different messages about where the world is in just in terms of facts, right? And what facts we're hearing. And I think we're, you know, over the last five or six weeks, we've been seeing that play out with the pandemic as well. Um, people are living in very different media worlds when it comes when it comes to this topic. So I think that's one dimension of it, and then I think you know going back to something you said earlier, you know, I think we all should just have a multiplication of expertises um, in in these different media landscapes. What do you think, Ben?
1: Yeah, I mean I think there's there's a lot to this. I mean there's a story in in business and economic history about fragmentation and um, it's in media fragmentation and this kind of uh, breaking out of, of the population into smaller and smaller niches uh where you try to target your uh, your sales and your advertising and i think it's important to remember that, that media is fundamentally an advertising industry uh, and so yeah. it's all driven by who is going to be the person who's listening or reading uh, or viewing your your content uh, and what you and what someone is trying to sell them and so you know when you frame it that way you can see that the the tendency is toward a more fragmented and more diverse, uh, or dis- dispersed, I should say, uh, environment. And and I think the other phenomenon that at least sort of uh, was was building uh, around is is this concept of a of a decline of gatekeepers, um, which can be seen as a positive thing from the perspective of spreading information, uh, and public discourse and debate and democracy. But it can also be seen as a a challenge to them, and and this is something that political scientists talk about in um, in sort of structural political terms. But it also applies to to media, the the expansion of web based um, media content, and the general cheapness of of access has flooded um, the world with a huge number of, um, of of content providers. We don't just have a handful of uh, of you know network news organizations anymore. In the same way, our political system also has sort of started to lose its its gatekeeping functions. The, yeah. the kind of power, party power brokers that used to make a lot of the decisions uh, are significantly weaker uh, than they than they have been. And I, I don't think these that's a coincidence that these things are all happening in the same sort of historical moment. The it's it's almost a, a kind of overflow of of options and choice. And less kind of rigor and and and, and guardrails um, that again can be a utopia uh, from one perspective, but it can also be uh, very chaotic from another.
0: And the chaos is really the key word there, because what happens when you get rid of gatekeepers is number one, you avoid and and really do fatal damage to the concept of a herd uh mentality that that can kind of uh, cloud what a general thought is but you also do that by multiplying chaos by infinity right like and now everybody could say anything and so it's not just a few segment producers and and uh uh section editors that decide kind of the the general tone of stuff so let's focus on Dr, yeah. Dr. Fauci for for a second because he obviously has become this very uh important focal point in in this discussion And not only because he is an expert, not only because he has a pedigree with National Institute of Health going back to the AIDS epidemic, but also because he's taken a very media forward uh, tact on this. He has appeared on a lot of shows. He constantly, he he reaches out to even new media on podcasts and and Instagram lives that uh, uh, government officials wouldn't normally do. It is that strengthening or weakening the position of what was, you know, used to be thought of as the fairly austere expert that was there to say what they had to say and then move on?
2: Yeah, well, I would love to interview him in a couple of years about what he thought his strategy was. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, he was clearly, you know, he is a celebrity of sorts in this moment. And, uh, you know, I think he's had to play a balance between um you know kind of towing the line with the administration and putting forward alternative perspectives um from especially the presidents um and i think that you know i think whether this is undermining expertise is totally kind of contextual right in that in that moment where it seemed like everyone was more or less listening to the same message and people were staying home He looked like a kind of, you know, unvarnished expert. Most people are listening to what he's saying. But I think as the tension kind of ramps up between some Republicans and uh, Democrats or what we should be doing, you know, with the lockdown versus opening up the economy, you see a lot more groups kind of questioning Fauci and the others. So I I think it really is going to depend on where we're at with a society, the degree to which these people are like, expertise in general, or just seen as another
1: part of the problem. And, and I do think it also matters to consider the, the sort of broader context of, of leadership in in a crisis. Uh, you know, part of the reason that Fauci has assumed the role that he has is that he is the you know really the only one in the administration who uh, is prepared to do that. And I think that has a lot to do with the ability and, and inclinations of the president himself. Uh, as well as uh, the the sort of nature of this particular crisis. And in a way, it sort of reminds me of uh, the degree to which 12 years ago when we were going through the 2008 uh, financial crisis, the degree to which Henry Paulson as the Treasury Secretary uh, and to some extent Ben Bernanke at the Fed became the sort of public faces of how we are dealing with this series of, of, of crises. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the actual president at the time um, – George W. Bush was at the very end of his uh, presidency. He was extremely unpopular, um, significantly more unpopular at that point in his presidency than Donald Trump is today, um, and didn't have the kind of gravitas, um, perhaps even the ability, to go up and and sort of uh, try to express that that things were under control, that, yeah. that that the grownups were in charge, and and so forth. And I think so. There's there's a parallel here. I mean, I think in, in this case it's it's even more dramatic um, for a lot of reasons. But I think there's a similar kind of problem of uh of leadership uh that bears on this question of you know when do we take when do we listen to experts and when when do we listen to experts because we blindly believe that they must be right because if they weren't they wouldn't be there and when do we do it because they're actually making a successful case uh that they're saying the right thing and that we should do what they say
0: so uh, one of the things that i've noticed throughout this entire process is that uh, in general, uh, I, I have been impressed with both Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci uh, uh, in terms of being good science communicators and being good public health communicators and explaining basic facts and uh, uh, why certain things happen and, and the the uh, ability for us to get through this. But as Dr. Fauci has now become a a, a bit of a boogeyman on the right, there was a moment in which Dr. Burks had become a bit of a, a, a boogie woman which I've never heard before but it sounds funny when i say it uh on on the left that she was looked at to be too much of a toady to Donald Trump or too complimentary yeah. of Donald Trump uh when i watched it i saw two very competent health professionals talking about a, a, almost identical things but is there just a role in partisanship of who you want to pick as your avatar to believe in when it comes to selecting the experts that we understand are correct?
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. I think a lot of times it matters who's, you know, talking more than the message matters, you know, and, um, and or we only pick out the experts who are saying what we want to hear on the other side. Um, you know, in, in climate change, I I make a, uh, argument in my automobile regulation book that you know, in a sense, Al Gore was like the worst face of climate change when he put forward an inconvenient truth, you know the his yeah, uh, the book that got him the Nobel Peace Prize because he had been hated by people on the right for you know twenty or thirty years at that point. um and so to have him be the face of, of climate change was just you know devastating to the case of climate change, I think. so you know you you would you would want something like evangelical ministers to do that that PowerPoint talk as opposed to uh, al Gore and so I think that you know it, it all has to do with how the kind of partisan filters and what messages we want to hear and who we're willing to listen to when we're dealing with these issues
1: and I think this really you know poses huge strategic problems for um, the political class on on any side of these issues because they tend to be the least uh I mean, they, they tend to be part of the major problem in the continued partisan partisan divide and the polarization of of politics um largely because they they would not say you know, to lee's point like <laughs> so say well wait why should we concede al gore um you know why should we give up on this um be, even though it would strategically maybe make more sense to do that uh, because i they think they're right uh and so this this leads to a sort of uh arms race basically where each side uh pushes more and more toward the extremes and uh and, and ultimately you know increases the level of, of dysfunction uh so i think that that partisan lens and the polar polarized lens is really the, the critical way to see any of these uh developments and it's i think at the moment that we were writing that op-ed uh it seemed for a brief moment like there was a greater level of consensus lurking somewhere beneath the surface um that might, uh, you know, might have flowered into something. I I don't think that really has. I think we're, we're seeing the resurgence of, uh, of that polarized frame on, on every, every decision, as you point out with the, um, the two experts.
0: So let me ask, and this might be the same answer. This might be even the same question, but it's going to sound a little different. Uh, obviously solutions have certain solutions, find homes in different political ideologies, but, when I look at the the uh, uh, negative feedback to certain experts, very often it's less about how they say it and more about what they're saying and the solutions that they are offering. In general, if somebody says, uh, do you believe in climate change? The answer might be yes, but if the uh, uh, solution is, well, you need to give up your car in the next 20 years, then the answer right. will be absolutely no. Uh, so how yeah. much of our criticism of experts is us shooting the messenger on the solutions that they are offering.
1: Yeah, I mean this is like the whole history of of regulation yeah. know, tied up in a in a neat little bow um, because it's that's that's it's frequently been the, the the challenge um you know are are you just defining a problem or are you proposing a solution?
2: Yeah, and I I think that's right. Um I don't think that, you know, I think it's very hard to kind of tease apart the the kind of normative upshots, like what we should be doing from from belief, um uh from, you know, who's speaking. I think these are really thorny issues that if we asked like uh you know, a political scientist, how would you measure that, you know, they would probably just throw their hands up in the air. <laughs> but I, I definitely think that if, you know, if, if the belief leads to, um, you know, certain outcomes or suggested courses of action and those courses of action go strongly against your interests, you know, if it if it's climate change legislation and it's going to raise your energy bill, for instance, you know, that that t- creates a whole nother space for whether people are going to be for or against it for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. Well, as we kind of wrap things up here, is there anything that that you guys see uh, even after uh, the the piece came out? And now, obviously, we are in a little bit more of a fractured place uh, in terms of, of of what to do going forward. Is there anything that you've seen has been effective that maybe we can model going forward in terms of? People uh, uh, listening to experts or, you know, is this just, you know, people listen to experts when the world is falling around their ankles?
2: What's something that strikes strikes me is that, um, you know, the polls I've seen, at least, suggests that most Americans are uncomfortable with the idea of going back to kind of normal life. Um, So even though there's this debate about how much we should open up versus be locked down, there's still I think a lot of wiggle room for what opening up looks like yeah Um, and so I think that there's like some hope there that you know we might the experts might not be able to tell us to stay home because you know lots of people think the economic devastation is just too much but there might be kind of wiggle room there to make suggestions for what for what kind of living in the world looks like at this moment
1: I think another thing I think that's right. And I think another thing that has sort of come out of this is the the ability of the general public to have a a kind of complicated and nuanced understanding of a problem that is not the way things are filtered through either opinion polls or frequently the way most media outlets uh, discuss public opinion Um, that, you know, this is not a simple choice between uh, go back to the way things used to be and take Whatever uh, horrible death count that that would entail versus stay on the level of isolation that we've been dealing with for a couple of months um, and that that people can can make their own uh, can, can make their own choices within a framework established by um, by collective action basically by by local government by state governments and and so on so I think you know there if there's a something to be optimistic about it's the fact that you know we don't have you know mayhem and bedlam in the streets and we haven't had the complete breakdown of of law and order um, that people in fact are are in many ways pulling together and that there's a lot of forces on people's behavior that are not um, rigidly top down you know there's a lot of cultural uh, pressure whether it's from your friends on social media or from celebrities uh, doing things on online or, or just sort of generally in the air there are a lot of ways that people's Uh, behaviors can be uh, shaped in a productive and healthful direction uh, that are not as sort of simple and and one-sided as as, uh, some of the most extreme voices might suggest.
0: There we go. That's a coronavirus interview that ends on a positive note. I'm happy about that. (laughs) I'm excited. All right, our guests have been Lee Vinsel and Benjamin C. Waterhouse. Of course, Benjamin is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author of Lobbying America The Politics of Business from Nixon to NAFTA and Land of Enterprise, a Business History of the United States. And Lee is an assistant professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech and co director of The Maintainers, a global network focused on maintenance, repair, infrastructure, and the ordinary work that keeps things going. He's written about the history of the United States automobile regulation and and this fall, we'll publish a co-authored book titled The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Disrupts the Work That Matters Most. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Oh, what a couple of guys. That was a good interview. I like that one. Tell you what, if you would like to have some input on this show, why don't you head on over to your email? You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We read emails sometimes, including this great one that came in after our episode on Wednesday. Dave writes, It's worse than you think with Woodrow Wilson. Wilson entered negotiations with Germany to end World War I with the intent of being fair Germany, But after he became ill with the flu in April uh, 1919, he became paranoid and unfocused. The French took advantage of his uh, infirmary, and ultimately Wilson caved to every French desire to punish Germany via the Treaty of Versailles. Needless to say, Germany felt betrayed by Wilson, and Hitler, for one, never got over it. John M. Barry uh, covered this in his overly long book about the 1918 flu called The Great Influenza. Who knows how uh, things might have ended up if Wilson had not gotten sick. Uh, I enjoy your content, and I've stuck with the $3 Club doing my part to help keep you Mr. Patreon moneybags. That is Dave. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Thank you for supporting the show, and thank you for that tidbit. Richard writes, Sorry I didn't get a chance to answer your politics question on time, but here it goes. What I hate about politics, roundabouts. What I love about politics, everything that's not a roundabout. Ask my wife and kids and they'll tell you. I rage against roundabouts whenever I see them. I avoid them at all costs, even if it takes me longer to get somewhere. My dream is to buy a bulldozer one day and plow straight through all roundabouts. Ah, just thinking about it makes me happy. Richard, you are you are a true patriot and American. A a distrust of roundabouts. A uniquely American perspective that I appreciate, good sir. Kenneth writes in, mail in an online voting. If you look at how the census was handled, you can see how online voting would work. They'd mail out an access code to all registered voters to verify their identity. It'd be a one-time only code. Then the voter would receive an email confirmation. Of course, underdog campaigns would love to disrupt the the status quo and incumbents would rather everything stayed the same. Over the years, many ideas have come and gone regarding the voting system in this country and they have all failed. It took a lot of time and money to game the current system. Why start over? Matt writes, I definitely agree with most of your thoughts and analysis on the Lincoln Project ad. That was the one that I compared, well, it it was a, a descendant of the Reagan Morning in America ad and, uh, I tried to explain through the Twitter interaction how it was uh, not great. Mentioning your opponent, uh, we returned to the email, is a good way to get people to think about your opponent. And while you got there at the end, I think there was one piece mostly missing. Does the Lincoln Project actually want Biden? I'm sure that personally, for many of the people who have worked on the ad, it's yes. But politically, do they want to tie themselves to a Democrat, especially one that looks likely to push ideals that are generally abhorrent to them? I think they purposely want to take potshots at Trump and hope they can get him out of office while trying to avoid the third-party spoiler stigma that's a good portion of their base would never forgive them for. Crossing the Rubicon is a good way to put it. But remember that Caesar crossed it to seize power. Never Trump Republicans, would be crossing the river to seat it. That is, unless they took a seat in power with the Democratic Party. I add. Editorially. And finally, Michael writes, the arrogance of the Democratic National Committee and the New York Democratic Party to erase everyone's name but sleepy bitty from the New York presidential primary ballot Sounds like Soviet Kremlin one-party ballot type uh, antics. I only wanted to include this email because I really like the idea of sleepy bitty. Again, the American at gmail.com is where you write in. But that is the uh, end of this particular episode of the show. I want to thank everybody in our $10 tier. Titanic they are. Middle aged Mike, Chad, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zaki Chan, Troublefilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen Summers, uh, Melk Lake Scoop, Emily, Wolf Glenn 99, Berkeley, Steven, The Jen, NH Blumkin, Robert Eoxy, D.L. Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, uh, J. Milius, Jonathan, Lindsay, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic, uh, Alan and uh, Olin and Angela, Richard. The Lonely Now, and Thor. Thank you guys so much for making this possible. If you want to get my insights five days a week into your email, you head on over to freepoliticalnewsletter.com. You want to find me on Twitter, I am at Justin R. Young. You want to find me on Instagram, same place. You want to get on my Discord? It's a place for 24-7 political talk from the people that listen to this show well, you head on over to bit.ly slash jury discord, J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying politics has three names. And I know a show that talks about politics. I know another one on television that talks about politics. And still one more discusses politics. But this is the only program that dares to talk about oh.